Miksu Patalainen's Kilmarnock story started on the final game before he arrived in Ayrshire. Kelly's last day draw with Falkirk in 2010 ensured Premier League survival and the dawn of a new era, albeit a brief one. In this episode of Kelly Histories, Miksu talks in detail about the recruitment, tactics and training philosophy he brought to the club for the memorable 2010-2011 season. I'm Gordon Gillen, and this is Miksu Patalainen. How much does where a team has been recently factor into your thoughts when applying for a job? The season previously, it had been quite a poor season. Do you think at all about what happened in the season before? Did you feel it would maybe be more of a challenge or does that not come into your thinking at all? It didn't come to my thinking at all. What actually happened was uh, then Chairman uh, Michael Johnston phoned me. I was on holiday uh, in Nice and I was walking the, the boulevard over there and, uh, and the phone went and uh, Michael introduced himself. He said that he had been in touch with uh, Rod Petri. Obviously, I was a hips manager before that. I had a year out, you know, from management. And uh, it was a family holiday there. And uh, and he came out of the blue, to be honest. Then, obviously, I explained that uh, I was on holiday. And, and we set a date that uh, we agreed that uh, I would come to Rugby Park and, and have a chat, give my views and, and their views and get the feel, uh, how we felt about the whole situation and personalities and stuff like that. Everything went well. It was great. Obviously, before I, I came to Rugby Park, I studied. I watched two games from the previous season. Uh, that season didn't go according to plan, although, thankfully, uh, Kelly survived and stayed in the Premier League, which was, which was excellent. It was also an interesting period because uh, after that season, a lot of players left. A lot of players were un, um, out of contract. If I recall right, there was uh, 11 established first-team players under contract plus two that were promoted from the under-19s, so 13 players. So I immediately felt that this is a fantastic opportunity to go in, bring in the players that would suit my playing style. I had spent that year after Hibs. I had spent that year studying the game, really. I travelled all across Europe, different countries, Portugal, Spain, Holland, Germany, Scandinavian countries, England, many clubs in England, and not only top clubs, but whenever, uh, using my contacts, whenever I, I heard that there's a, there's a manager, there's a coach, head coach, who emphasizes on this, sports science, uh, mm-hmm. fantastic tactical attacking play, uh, set plays, you name it, many aspects of the game. I wanted to go and, uh, and visit the club and watch the training sessions and uh, interview and talk to the coaches about their, about their philosophy, how they go about and, and how would they believe that brings them success. So I used that year to learn and find my, my philosophy. Before, when I was hips, I didn't have a, a clarity in my mind how I wanted to play. I didn't. And obviously, before before hips, I was in Finland with TPS and Cowden Beast before that. So it was it was very early in my career. It was only um, a few years that I had been a head coach. So it it was it was quite early in my career. But that year, traveling Europe and thinking about the how to go about, and um, I remember hips days before coming to Kilmarnock. Obviously, being the next job, I had numerous of discussions with my backroom staff, the coaches. We should do 
this way and this way and this way. And they were always saying that, no, 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 you can't do too much tactics. You can't do too much tactics because the players can't take that. Players get tired and all that. When I visited so many countries and top, top footballing countries and top coaches and all that, I decided that uh, I'm going to go for a tactics majority of the time. But I also, I also realized, obviously, I was lucky enough to, be a, to have a playing career and be a player until I was 39 uh, years of, 28 years of, years of age. So um, I knew that uh, players need a mental holiday. I call it a mental holiday during a training session because um, if it gets too heavy in terms of tactics and tactics and shaping and blah, 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 blah. And you can do the tactical work in many ways uh, so that it's not boring. It's not just that standing and shaping and moving and blah, blah, blah. Of course, you need that as well. But uh, you can do it in many ways. And then hide it if you like, but making sure that every player understands 100% clearly what their role is in the team, uh, what are their jobs, and they practice. For me, it's very important. The players must practice every day in training sessions what they do in the match. And uh, sometimes I think that uh, that is forgotten. I suddenly, I decided that I'm going to go like that. And I have a wee fighter sides. I have a wee boxes, 5v2 boxes, you know, during training session. Sometimes in a, in a place that uh, everybody, well, we play fighter sides now because it was traditionally fighter sides was the end of the training. So sometimes, sometimes we did some tactical work and then fighter sides, we would go back in the tactical work. Then maybe finish with the, with the fighter sides or whatever. So mental holidays is very important for the players. I told all these, these things to Michael Johnson and there, there was other, a couple of other directors there and they liked it. They also liked the fact I wanted to be part of the, the youth side of things, not deciding and dominating the scene and everything, not, not at all, but be part of it. Uh, give my input and be present at the training session, youth training sessions. I think it's a, for a young kid, I think it's great to see the first team manager there. And, and talking to, well done, well done, you're doing well, you're improving well, I'm talking to your coaches and blah, blah, blah. What a motivation that is. And if we can help a young kid like that, fantastic. So if all the coaches, all the Kili coaches together, all the club coaches together to improve our players, that, that was the idea. So that was, that was really the, the idea. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting period, if you like, in terms of uh, Kili just surviving the previous season. All the papers made us uh, relegation favourites. I remembered that. And that motivated me so much. It was unbelievable. I used that. I told players that. Obviously, players were fantastic. I was, I was lucky to, to be able to bring in uh, quite a few players. We didn't pay a penny for transfer fees. And then we ended up selling uh, quite a few with, uh, with uh, good sums of money. So uh, that was good. I'm sure you'll have been asked this before. And I think it's a, a question that maybe John Hughes is asked as well. Do you feel that your style, you were a physical striker, a target man, if you like, do you feel that your style as a player led to people having preconceived ideas about what your managerial, the way your teams would play? Do you think that maybe had an impact on people? I think it's natural. I think it's natural. That initial perception, oh, he was a robust striker, put himself about and all that, so his team will be similar way. But on the other hand, and uh, the other side of my game, I love the link-up play. I love the combinations. I love the creating combinations and planned combinations from training ground with the attacking midfielders, with the white players and the fellow striker, of course. So that, that kind of link-up play and passing football was always important to me. I remember 
Alec McLeish was my, my manager at Hebs with Bobby. But uh, Alec McLeish was the first one. He brought me to Hebs. And, and he used to say that to the players, to the defenders, because obviously I was quite good in the air, you know, punt the ball up and Mixer will head it on. Kelly Miller will run behind the defense and score a goal. Alec McLeish used to say that, uh, don't do it. Don't do it. Play to his feet. Play to his chest. Play so that ball was played to me. And then Russell Latapi and um, John O'Neill and, and, and the rest, I would link with them and we would create that opening and with Kenny and, and, and that sort of stuff. That's the football I enjoyed as a player. And that football was always in my mind that that's the way to play. Pass it to man or pass it to the space uh, where the man is running. Constructive, systematic passing football with the idea of every pass. I don't like nothing passes. And that was always, even, even when I was a player, I used to uh, hate. Um, and obviously, when I was a manager, I encouraged players to pass the ball. Movement is so important. Creating overloads by movement or by positioning yourself. And I think it's very important uh, uh, in football. So, yes, people might have had perception that, uh, you know, Big Mixu will play a very aggressive game. Oh, aggression is always important in the game. Don't get me wrong. But uh, the most important thing is that uh, there's an idea how to pass the ball. There's an idea how to create that goal-scoring opportunity. I'm now wondering about the relationship and the dynamic with Kenny Shields. He didn't come as part of your existing coaching staff? First of all, what happened uh, was um, Kenny. Kenny used to come to our training sessions quite often at Hips, Hips Training Club when I was a manager of Hips because um, Dean, his son, played for me at Hips. So he used to, he used to come... Um, uh, what's our training there? Um, he was the head of youth at the time with Tranmere Rovers. Because he came to the training ground, we spoke. We spoke about Dino. We spoke about the football in general. I went to England to scout players regularly, almost every week. And whenever I went uh, close to Liverpool or that sort of area, I said uh, to Kenny that fancy coming to the game. And we'd, we would go for a coffee and talk and stuff like that. So we kind of uh, got to know each other. Before that, I hadn't met Kenny at all. And then I realized that we, we shared very similar idea how to go about, how to, how to play. And then when I ended up coming to Kelly, I thought that um, Kenny would be ideal. My assistant, the assistant manager, Donald Park, had moved to SFA, to the coach education. He was there and he was happy there. I had to get a new assistant manager. And I thought, that, uh, why not Kenny? Thankfully, Tranmere Rovers uh, were positive about that idea and, and he ended up um, joining us. We had a fantastic working relationship. He's an intelligent man and, and, and a really good guy. He was great to work with. What was the club's targets for the season and did it line up very closely with your targets? The club's target was to survive comfortably. That was the club's target. Not, not through the playoffs, not through the last game of the season. To survive comfortably. I can't remember exactly position-wise, but being eighth or ninth or something like that, so that uh, there would not be a huge burden come to the you know last couple of matches and, and stuff like that. That was the club's target. I made it clear to Kilmarnock chairman and uh, and two directors straight away that my target was first of all survive comfortably, but make Kilmarnock top six club, and eventually challenge for European places. European places, uh, I think, and I thought, were possible. 
Of course you need luck. Of course you need luck in player recruitment. Of course you need luck in injuries and stuff like that and how everything pans out. Um, but uh, through hard work and believing in your philosophy, I think it's, it's, it's possible if you create a path towards that. Not saying straight away that the first year will qualify for Europe, but eventually working towards that and make, make the club back like that. <sighs> I, I would not be surprised if one or two uh, who heard that raised their eyebrows. Oh, hmm, very ambitious. Taking the, the last season particularly, how things well that went. But uh, I thought it was, uh, it was realistic. That season uh, really proved that it was, it was uh, possible and uh, no problem. Was it obvious to you immediately what you needed to add to that team? Yes. Yes, it was. Of course, I, I knew the existing players who were under contract and, and kept. And I knew that uh, what, to what, which positions we needed players. I also knew what type of football we would, uh, we, we would like to play. I knew that uh, you know there would be we would need certain type of players to come into the club, and that sort of stuff. And although there was um, thirteen players in the first team squad initially, that must have uh, scared away quite a few candidates, saying that uh, you know I, I wouldn't be surprised. But um, I, I thought it was positive. I thought it was good. It was a good opportunity because everybody understands so often. So often you go to the club and there are too many players. Like when I went to when I went to Hips, for example, there was about 37, 40 players. Unbelievable amount of players. So straight away you start offloading players before you can really bring in players. And I thought that was that was the totally opposite situation. That was great. Then obviously um, I had traveled to Europe, making contact, seeing players, and and looking at players. Uh, you know, he he would be he would be good for that position. He would be good for that position and stuff like that. Then I used my contacts and uh, and made sure that player who came to to Kili was the type of player that uh, we wanted. And also, you know, there there were plenty strengthening for various positions needed. They would fit that category. It's certainly something I was going to ask as a follow up: the recruitment process for players, because I think it's fair to say. Well, my take on it would be it was quite an eclectic mix of players. And I think it was it was an exciting time because I don't think I honestly, I'm not a student of the, the European game. I hadn't heard of very many of the players that came in. And I think that maybe traditionally <laughs> and, and, and I mean it in a in a very positive yeah, way. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I think traditionally in Scottish football, you know a signing you know, when you see the name, you know the name. Even Alexei Aramenko, maybe I should have known Alexei Aramenko because a Finnish international no. names are James Dayton, Mosisoko. And this was purely the vast majority of these contacts would have been through your work in that year previously at the clubs, making mm-hmm. contact with agents as well. And that's yes. where it all came yeah. from. Absolutely, absolutely. I've always laughed, I still laugh, I still say uh, jokingly that uh, the Scottish mentality is that, uh, who? Never heard. You must be shy. <laughs> That's the way it is. That's the way. It is. Yeah, you say that. I love it. I love it. That's, uh, who are you playing in Europe? Who, who are you playing in Europe against? Never heard that club. They must be rubbish. You know, it's, it's, it's a fact. It's a, it's a classic. Player? Who? Never heard. Nah. Nah, no good. You know, it's, a <laughs> it's one of those things. I love it. Love it. So um, here we go. Uh, but um, no, no, exactly that. Using the people I knew, it was quite amazing how, from what kind of clubs, you know, we recruited players in the end of the day. Club in Russia, well, 
I, I vote to Alex Day in a minute, but because um, that was a, that was a unique situation, you know, from from Aston Villas and Everton's and 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 Chelsea's, nothing new there. Loan players, young loan players, young you know potential players with plenty legs and 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 chance in the game. That's nothing new. But then there was the uh, Udinese's and and uh, CSK Sofias and uh, AC Milan and you know uh, Metalist Kharkiv, you know Ukrainian club. These these are not um, Slavia Prague. They, they, it's they, these are not clubs that uh, you know normally players you know come to Scotland. And so many so many. Uh, supporters must have been like, who? Never heard. You know, unbelievable. But um, like James Dayton, he was a he was a young player, a potential young player. Had a bad injury. Glenn Hoddle had a fantastic academy in Spain where he took young potential players who got an injury and didn't get the pro contract. He got them right. He trained them. He got them fit. He improved their football understanding. Glenn Huddle being a fantastic footballer as he was. And James Dayton was one of them. So he, he came on trial, trained with us a, a little while, and, uh, and he was exactly the player that, uh, that I liked. By the way, all those players, apart from Alexei Eremenko, everybody came through a trial. And uh, there was much more. There was much more. I remember Michael Johnson, one of the, one of the meetings, the weekly meetings we had, he said, Mixer, you're, you're, you're unbelievable. I mean, you've had so many trialists. To some of them, after two days, you say, thank you very much, you can go home. It wasn't automatic that if a player came on trial, he got a contract. And, and he shouldn't be. He was astonished. But uh, that's the way it goes. And that's, that's, the, that's the meaning of trial. We were quite lucky. We were quite lucky that we, we, we managed to bring in players and, uh, and that sort, sort of stuff. With Alexei Losa, as uh, his friends call him, I knew his dad well. Obviously, Alexei was a Finland full internationalist, good player, technically fantastic, vision, awareness, excellent. I know his dad well. We did the coaching courses, the pro, pro license together, and we were roommates. And I phoned. Uh, I knew that uh, Loza wasn't happy with, uh, with Metalist Kharkiv and, uh, in Ukraine. He wanted to move. or He, he, was, he was at the time already training with his dad, uh, Finnish Premier League club. And waiting, you know, keeping himself fit and playing some matches and keeping fitness up and waiting to move on. I said to I said to um, Alexei Senior, I said to him, why does he not come to Kilmarnock? You know, you, you know the type of football I want to play. He'll, he'll be safe. He'll be safe in that respect. We will pass the ball and he'll be, he'll be um, you know, he'll, he'll uh, relish that, that kind of football and uh, loves it. And uh, he said that, I said that it would be a great shop window, uh, English clubs. Uh, perhaps uh, other clubs in Scotland. He liked the idea. He spoke to the club on our behalf, uh, made it possible, and uh, and then uh, Alexei Alexei joined us. And so that was good. That was very good. That created a problem, formation problem uh, for me. We may come to that later on. Did you know just how good he was? Yes, I did. I did. Because his career... I think I'm right in saying it was a Serie A, but yes. with no disrespect to the Finnish league, the trajectory seems to be kind of going downwards. But yet we all saw the player that was there. But you always knew that top quality player was in there. He was only there to keep himself fit and waiting for the next club in Europe. He, he wasn't. He didn't go back to Finland to play uh, over there because he had found out that he wasn't good enough in Europe. No. It was only only a, a spell that uh, you know he you know he just couldn't 
you know, lie on the sofa. No, I did. I did know exactly what he was. He was able to do. Uh, I had seen plenty of Finnish, Finland matches, national team matches, and uh, I knew exactly. I think when you when we talk about player recruitment, I think you should only because you you don't want to spend money for nothing and take big risks. Of course, you can never legislate injuries. Injuries are something that you can control. But I think you should only bring players to the club that. After they've signed, you look at the situation. You say, "Wow, how did we manage to bring that player to the club?" Then we're talking about real improvement. Then we're talking about, "Oh, here we go, brilliant! Now we are stronger." I think quite often the situation is that uh, you bring in somebody to fill the position. He's, he's, he's okay for that position. If you have any hesitation, I, I don't think you should bring a player. He must be somebody, somebody that uh, you say that. Uh, wow, we're so lucky, we got him. And some, I know, I know somebody after me saying this. I know that somebody will say that. Uh, well, when you look at the list of players you bring in, not all of them even even played, you know, that much and all that, and and they were not. Of course, that always happens. Of course, but if you, I think if you have that kind of uh, mentality and philosophy in player recruitment, then. Um, you make good purchases more than uh, not good. We've touched on it already, of course, your general philosophy. I'm quite keen to understand what a week of training with Mixupatalainen would look like. You've already talked about it being quite a tactical focus. Mm-hmm. That was always geared very much towards the match day. Did the players buy in to that style at Kilmarnock? Like I said earlier, I wanted to implement the, the, the idea of tactical training every day. If I can put it the other words, I wanted to give players tactical knowledge every day of the week, how they can play better next, next time. It could be in, um, in the form of video feedback session with the players. For example, Monday, the players are still tired from Saturday's game, for if, if the Sunday is a, is, a, is a day off, for example. Quite often nowadays, uh, teams and you know train on Sunday. Uh, so recovery day. Recovery day uh, could be and, and should be very light, not too tactical at all. But there might be in the afternoon, there might be a video session. We, we look at the previous match and uh, we learn how we can improve what we've done right so we can do them again and that sort of stuff. But Tuesday would be a double session and uh, tactics would play a big role in that already towards the next opponent. You don't want to waste a day. Fitness is very important, but you can do the fitness work at the same time. And sometimes it's good to do tactical work when the players are tired. They need to be able to think when they're tired in the match situation. So it is important aspect as well. In my training session, preparing tactically towards the next match starts from the day one after the, the last game. You can put your fitness sessions, you can put your, your gym sessions, you can put your recovery sessions, you can put your uh, set play sessions, you can put everything into it as well. But every day would be tactics, would be some aspect how the players get knowledge, how they can play better next game. The way Kilmarnock players bought it was unbelievable. And I'm I'm so thankful to the players because uh, they liked it. It was against all odds. It was against the discussions previously I had had with my coaching staff before Kilijo. You know, players can't take so much information 
they can, if you have those mental holidays within a training session, it can't be just bang, 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 tactics and boring tactics all the time. It can't be like that. But if you have those mental holidays every day, you can teach players tactical aspects of the game. And my philosophy is that uh, every player must know their role in the team. Every player must know his jobs for his position. And every player must practice his positional skills every day or get, get information how he can uh, execute his jobs better. Maybe somebody doesn't, doesn't like it. Maybe somebody can't can take it. Then um, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. But the way Guinea players, it was great. Uh, the way they bought it and, uh, and they loved it. But I think the key is the mental holidays within the training system. Absolutely, you have to take op opponent into account. You have to take into account, uh, first of all, their formation. I think that's the most important. Of course, you have to take into account what type of players they have in certain positions. So you don't sell yourself short. Absolutely, you have to know exactly the opponent. And uh, therefore, you analyze the opponent beforehand. Uh, in Scotland, you play against opponents many, many times. You know the managers well. You know they're thinking quite well and that sort of stuff. But there might, there might always be surprises. But talking about the opponent too much, I think is not good. It is important to what I just said, to take into account so that you can prepare your starting positions, your movement, so you can hurt the opponent. Uh, in terms of, you know, movement and football and passes and stuff like that and get in the dangerous situations. So you have to take that into account. But you have to make sure that every player, the way you want to play, they know their movement, their passes, their first, uh, they, they, they start in positions and that sort of stuff. I think it's more important. But they go hand in hand because uh, you have to know the opponent uh, shape. Uh, where they have players, uh, you have to know that the, the target areas, which which ones you want to exploit, where you want the ball to go to, and where you want to de deliver the ball after that, of course. And defensively, you know, how you need to do, how you need to anticipate certain situations, because that is familiar with the, with the opponent, what they've done in the past. But of course, of course, always, uh, my last line is that uh, we, we have to be prepared, whatever they throw at us. But our own game, gives players confidence. I believe in that. If the player knows exactly, every player, their position knows exactly what they should do, and they practice those jobs every day, their confidence is higher. Because no matter what you do, if you know what you do, you believe in yourself. If you don't know, you're apprehensive and see how it goes and, and stuff like that. It is very important. And then you give the player the freedom you must give the player the freedom to express himself, make his own decisions. And uh, I don't think you should be negative, critical when he makes uh, poor decisions. You should correct them. That's why you have individual and uh, collective as team uh, uh, feedback sessions, video sessions. That's why. So it is a real uh, a learning process. And uh, I'm thankful for the players that they, they bought that. I'm thankful that uh, we persevered. But, but I must say, I must say that uh, we started the season 4-3-3 formation when uh, Alexei Yeremenko uh, came to the club. I wanted, I wanted to play both uh, Losa and, and Meditavo because I liked Lee Medi as a player. You know, he was always, he was quick on the turn and, uh, and all that. Although he wasn't too much of a goal threat, but he was, uh, he was important link in that midfield. 
And then obviously uh, that created uh, other problems uh, because I knew that uh, Loza, Loza and Meditawul wouldn't defend. They were artists. They were creative players. They were wonderful footballers, but they, they didn't like the, the dirty job, if you like, you know, defending, getting back. So I thought that uh, I need to have uh, disciplined players below them to take the, you know, the players that they might uh, let go. So that, that created the, us uh, changing the formation, which then we, we started to drum in, you know, the jobs and the movement and the starting positions and, uh, and the sequences of passes from there on with that formation. That worked really well. It was, it was really good. I think I'm right in saying that you had Guillaume Bouzelan on trial. Quite unfortunate that he possibly got an injury at the time. Clearly, the, that number 10, that free creative presence, that was always on your mind. Yes. At the start of the season, it was the wide players being used. So I wonder what would have been the preference if you'd started by targeting that creative player, but at the same time were comfortable playing with two wide players. Am I misdescribing the tactic? No, both. Both. I don't think the formation is is something that uh, is very, very, very important. I think the movement, I think the understanding where we try to deliver the ball, where I am as a player in that passing sequence and, and that sort of stuff. If all the players understand the aim, what we're trying to do, then you are advanced. You have advanced uh, in terms of uh, you know tactical uh, awareness of the, and knowledge of those players. What we we trying to do with our team. But so both work, no problem. Even um, when when we had and we, sometimes we played with the with the so, so-called Christmas tree with the with the back four, uh, midfield three, two number tens, and and one striker. We changed it. We changed it. Sometimes we started the match with the four-three-three formation. We had good, good white players. We had David Silva on the left. We had James uh, uh, Dayton on the right, and we had other ones as well. No problem. So it wasn't just that uh, you know we we played with that formation all the time. Not, not at all. We changed it every now now and then, and the players knew exactly you know that system as well because we started the season with that system. It was easy for them to to learn and carry on and and blah blah blah. Then we tweaked it a little bit. Um, well, quite a lot, creating number two number tens, and that changed the situation. So we were able to create more overloads, and that enabled us to have that free flow and passes. You know, loads of passes. We we had we had free players all the time, but that that was purely because uh, because of the player starting position and players movement created that. So it was it wasn't the formation. It's it's eleven players out there. If somebody wanted to play man against man against man against us. No overloads. It would have been man against man, <laughs> and and that sort of stuff. But um, nowadays, uh, not too many teams play man against man defense. Just moving and passing formation. I, I don't think we should pay too much attention to that at all. Player development. It's coming across quite clearly is a major part of your managerial philosophy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to choose a specific player to ask you about, and I wonder what it was in Jamie Hamill that you saw as a galloping overlapping right back come right wing back brilliant from the defensive midfielder that we would have known initially Jamie is a player with full of was a player with full of energy unbelievable amount of energy and willingness to burn that energy and I, I thought he was made for that role I prefer back four uh, although I, I like back three as well 
and uh, you know what happens um, in attacking formation is something different uh, in my in my mind. I, I like the back four because I like the fullbacks to get forward, and and then we we acquired Ben Gordon from Chelsea, young youngster on loan, and he fitted the role really well on that left fullback. That's why Gary Hay didn't play too much as a fullback because Ben slotted in that place uh, so well. Gary played there, but Gary played more in that three, midfield three, uh, on the left-hand side. And he did that job so well, because Gary is an intelligent guy. He's a thinker, same as James Fowler um, on the other side. Fantastic. The way, the way they actually played for the team was absolutely brilliant. They were so important, you know, in the build-up play, with their movement and all that, where you, where you really need your uh, football intelligence. You know, Gary Hay and, uh, and James Fowler were fantastic for those roles. Coming back to Jamie Hamill, it was purely because he had so much energy to burn. And I, I think people don't remember that he scored 10 goals this season. Double figures. So it was, uh, it was uh, you know, I don't think he's got, uh, you know, too many seasons, uh, you know, double figures. So that shows how well he adopted that role and how well he, he, he played that role. My intention is not, uh, not to change, you know, if, if somebody has played many, many years in a certain position, uh, it's not my intention to change it. No, I don't want to force anything. But I felt that uh, we wanted to have right-back position, somebody who's got, who's got energy to go forward, overlap, good delivery, and then get back as well. And first and foremost, as a fullback, be able to defend solidly, defend solidly. One against one situation. I don't think anybody liked to play against Jamie Hammer one, one against one situation because of the, the terrier that he was. From that aspect, being a defensive midfielder and a ball winner, good one against one situations uh, and loads of, loads of energy. So I thought that uh, his attributes, his athletic attributes and the football knowledge and the football skills enabled him to fit in that role. Then, whenever, and, and sometimes you are in that situation that you... You ask a player, what about you fancy you fancy trying that new position? I think it would it would it would suit you because of this and this and this reason. You got this attribute, this attribute, this attribute, and this is what we want you to do. So you would perhaps enjoy it because it fits your attribute so well. And then the player start to think, hmm, oh, okay. So sometimes you do change positions, but um, but you I think it's very important not to force him to play new position. But if you can somehow convince the player and to understand the player to make, make him understand uh, he's got all the necessary tools to play that position well, then I think uh, the player will buy it. Everybody had a fantastic attitude. Yes, yes, I try that. If you want me to try that, I try that. And uh, so thankful for the player's positive uh, uh, willingness to try. The football from day one was enjoyable to watch. But the results were slow in coming. I think that's fair to say. Yes. At what point does pragmatism replace that philosophy of, of, of wanting to play the good football? Or do you stick with it? Did you ever doubt? I didn't doubt. Because I could see, I could see the improvement all the time. Every week in the video uh, feedback sessions in the previous match, I was able to show them more and more things that worked and then strengthen them and correct the other stuff. More and more I could see, oh, oh, 
that's better. That works. You know, blah, blah, blah. Brilliant. And I, I couldn't wait to show those positive clips uh, to the players. And, and when it comes to, to video feedback situations, uh, somebody told me that uh, feedback should be positive, not destructive, negative, criticism. So often it goes into that criticism, especially with our sticky start of the season. You know, bearing in mind that it was, uh, it was Halloween, we were at the bottom of the league. Hey, end of October. So, so it was a sticky start of the season. We were improving. We were getting there. I could see that. I could show the players positive aspects more and more. Thankfully, we, we, were, we were able to, to turn it. And then we, we got that uh, hat-trick of three nil victories, which was quite amazing. And then we, we carried on, obviously. Then the confidence, getting those victories. Oh, of course, you cre- you have, you're lucky on the way as well. I believe you create your own luck. Then it started to go. And uh, I was... Uh, I was glad that uh, we did persevere. I was, I was also glad that uh, we were brave enough to change the formation and keep the passing football philosophy on, that passing style on, which enabled us to, to create more overloads, which was, uh, which was the key. And then, of course, I can't, <laughs> can't be without saying that uh, Conor Salmon's input in the way of running behind and, uh, and practicing those situations when he gets a one, one against one situation with the goalkeeper and the way he opens his body. Don't come towards the ball. Leave a bigger angle to run behind so you have more options to, to get behind and stuff like that. The tendency of the strikers is to go towards the ball. Uh, I think the strikers should move away initially and then go, depending on the striker, of course. But uh, that was uh, Connor and, uh, and he, he, was, oh, he was on fire. You know, that was very important. He had fantastic passers below him, uh, Mary Tawel and, uh, and Alexei, and the other ones as well. Those, um, those Gary Hayes and, uh, and Fowlers and Liam Kellys and, you know, uh, so many players. Craig Bryson, fantastic energy, brilliant player for us. He took a long time to, to get comfortable with that for us. Um, I remember talking to him many, many occasions, uh, you know, and he, he didn't, couldn't quite understand the timings and, and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and we spoke a lot, but, uh, oh, it was so important. Uh, so, so those, those players, uh, Gary Hayes and Jamie's, uh, and James Fowlers and, and, uh, and Liam Kelly's getting forward and making those passes for Connor as well. It wasn't just the number, t- number 10s. And that's what I meant about uh, overlooks. You know, many players uh, had the input of uh, making us dangerous. Uh, in terms of getting behind the defence and creating post-scoring opportunities. Mix, is it too simplistic? And I, I, I fear that sometimes my questions are a bit simplistic compared to the answers that you're giving, but is it too simplistic to say that the 3-0 victory at Tynecastle was the turning point of the season? And if it was a turning point, or if it did have that level of significance, what was different that day compared to the week before against Inverness when it was a, a home defeat? There wasn't too much difference. We scored goals. We get the same idea going. Everything clicked. And then, of course, when, when you have that positive uh, uh, result, Tynecastle, which is never an easy place to go to, and against, against all odds, really, when you get that, that's the time to really analyze, you know, what we've done right so we can do it again and show the players and tell the players and stuff like that. So often when you, when you get a magnificent victory you know you're like oh 
beautiful. We've we've done it, you know, and you 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 stop analyzing, you stop realizing what you're actually doing right. It's important, as important as correcting things. It is so important not to know what you're doing right so you can do it again. But I think you're 100 percent right. That was the turning point. That was the turning point uh, for our season, and uh, and then uh, we started to climb up the table. There's a second game I'd like to mention, and it was Christmas game at St Mirren. The game itself might not be something that you think, well, I specifically remember that exact match. Mm-hmm. But it was a game where Kilmarnock had brought, they'd sold out behind the, the section behind the goal, and the fans were coming right round the, in, into the main yes. stand. And I just wonder if you at the time were aware of the rejuvenating impact that you had on the support after some difficult times. Were you aware of just how much people were enjoying watching the team that you put together? The atmosphere atmosphere was fantastic. And uh, my son, uh, who still is a Kilmarnock support, uh, from those days, he was there. He sings the songs. He's, he's there. He was there. And uh, he, he always told me how, how, you know, fantastic atmosphere there was. Uh, of course you hear, hear them. Of course. Uh, and and when that happens, that is a beautiful uh, hearing, a beautiful scene. Um, of course, you want to see your supporters following the team and uh, and be be vocal and uh, and uh, and that. Obviously, I wasn't at terraces. My my son was, and he he, he told you know how brilliant it was and uh, how how enjoyable. So often it's it's uh, it's uh, it's quite quite the opposite, you know you, you know doom and gloom and swear words and. And blah blah blah, and what can you say again? You know, blah, blah, addition, you know, and and that when that happens, that uh, team is playing well, and uh, and the players and the, and the pitch are successful, and then uh, um, and enjoy that with the supporters. <laughs> that's the best. That's the best situation uh, you can have. Our job was to make sure that uh, players did it right on the pitch. As coaches, we don't concentrate too much on the crowd. We concentrate on the game. We watch every pass, every move, timings, you know, balance when we attack so we don't leave ourselves short for the counter-attacks and stuff like that. And knowing what the opponent tries to do and their strengths, how, how we nullify them, other players, is somebody tired physically, mentally, uh, that sort of stuff. So so there's there's plenty going on there. But of course, of course, the, the, the amount of killing supporters who, who came to me after matches and before matches and and uh, quite often I stayed at the hotel uh, rugby park uh, the previous night of the match and uh, and and even after my Killy days uh, so many so many Killy supporters you know they, they come to me and that's 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 really pleasing that's really nice and I'm taken and uh, and pleased that uh, uh, they enjoyed I think that's what your leadership brought was that idea of things are possible would I be right in saying, Mixu, that you would would you describe yourself as an ambitious manager? And I mean in terms of your philosophy. Very ambitious. Uh, very ambitious. I was ambitious as a player. I was very lucky, uh, fortunate to play the highest level and, and had a long career. Uh, same applies, you know, whatever I do uh, as a manager, very ambitious. I might be in Hong Kong, uh, national team head coach at the moment, but I'm in a new environment. I'm in a new situation. I'm not necessarily in uh, in my comfort zone. Uh, I want to learn, and I think if you if you're ambitious, you want to learn and you want to create, uh, be better in the future. 
these these experiences what I'm for example experiencing now shows my ambition. I want to be better coach. I want to be better human being, person. Put myself in the situations. Uh, Hong Kong is not the greatest football country in Asia, but nowhere near. We have plenty to do here, but to cope in these situations and improve situations here improves me as a as a as a coach as a person. So uh, that's what it's all about for me. Of course, of course, I would love to have an opportunity to return to Europe. Uh, hopefully, I get that chance. Uh, you can never take anything for granted. I'd love to return one day, return to Scotland one day, maybe England, whatever. Uh, so, so it's a. Uh, but now, I put emphasis on me learning, me putting myself in the new situations, new environment, new man management skills needed over here, new culture altogether. Everything is different. This is fascinating. So I think um, if you're ambitious, you want to learn. And that's what I'm doing all the time, every day. Thinking about the success that you had at Kilmarnock. Now, within a year, you had taken up what I assume you would maybe describe as a dream job as the Finland national manager. But also within that time, not long after you left, Alexei Eremenko, as expected, returned to his, his club. Craig Bryson, Connor Salmon, Liam Kelly, Mehdi Taul, Jamie Hamill, they all moved on as well. Mm-hmm. Can you do too well at a provincial club? Is there a ceiling on what a provincial club can achieve before things come to an end? I think that's where the youth development plays a huge role. Of course, there's a there's a danger. You mentioned how many players, eight players, that moved on. I must also say that, uh, and everybody should understand, although it's difficult, I know, and it's very difficult for a manager that best players are sold. But finances, finances are so important. Of course they are. We were, we were so lucky. We brought in so many players, about 15 players. We didn't pay a penny transfer fee. And after the season, we sold players, uh, I don't know, exact figure, but around 3 million. So it was, it was good. I think everybody should understand that uh, if, you know, if somebody comes there uh, in the January from the English Premier League and is willing to pay you know, a good sum of money, then um, he's likely to go. And also for the player's development and for the player's career, it would be wrong to say no. But uh, of course, he eats the manager. They, you know, somebody who scored 18 goals by the end of uh, January goals. So it's a, it's a big hole to, to, uh, to fill it. But uh, you have to understand the finances. But that's where I would say the youth development system is so important so that uh, you, have, you have the succession plan all the time. You know, he's the next for that position. He's the next for that position. He's the next. And the quality of coaching in those uh, youth teams and the real coaching philosophy uh, at the club. So it is important. Uh, but I don't, think, uh, I don't think you can never stop players moving um, after a so-called, I say that, so-called successful season. It was great. Of, of, obviously, with, with Kenny, you know, the League Cup was fantastic. You know, afterwards, and it was a fantastic achievement and all that. I'm not surprised that uh, so many players moved on because they played so well. And just without labouring the point, Miksu, am I right in reading between the lines? Would you perhaps suggest that the philosophy of a club is more important than possibly who is in the manager's seat? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think philosophy, the, the playing 
philosophy, uh, the club's playing philosophy is the first thing. And then the club gets the manager, uh, head coach into that, that fits that philosophy. It has to be that way. Because otherwise, otherwise, every time the manager changes, everything is, uh, you go back to, back to the, the ground level, uh, that improvement stops. So there has to be that continuity. And that, that can only be continuous if uh, it is the club's playing uh, philosophy that is followed and the coaches come into that system. Absolutely. It's coming across very, very clearly your approach to management and how that impacts your own development. Can you think of anything that you learned at your time at Kilmarnock about you oh, as a manager? Tremendously. Unbelievable. It changed so much, so much. I changed the, the way I would prepare the team in terms of, uh, you know, we, we spoke about that, the, the weekly training sessions, uh, what kind of approach, changed all that. We also managed to to be very, very professional in the sports science side of things. Uh, we made a deal with the, with the Glasgow Uni. Uh, remember, we train at the science park. So we made a deal with the Glasgow Uni and gave the, the last year students chance to come to our training session and do things with the players uh, that we wanted and, and agreed. Leading professor for the sports science uh, department was ever present in our training sessions. So I was, I was able to have a conversation with him to please them and to please us, what we wanted to do. We changed uh, so much. We, we tested players, uh, hydration levels, cortisol levels, um, all sorts, just to make sure that the players were ready. Uh, players were hydrated. They were ready to, for the match. They were, they were ready to train hard on Monday morning. Also, um, you know, uh, testing how much, how hard can we train and that sort of stuff. Uh, never mind the training itself. So this was excellent. Learned so much uh, during that year. But the most important thing was that uh, uh, how to prepare the team. That was the first time that I I started to use my coaching philosophy and really really focus on the positional skills. And uh, one might say that uh, I coached the team through coaching individuals. It is like that because in the end of the day, football is a is a, it is that one individual who decides where to pass, what kind of pass, when to pass, where to run, what kind of starting position, how's the body at. It's not a collective decision, you know. How fast will he run? Where he will run? So timings. So it's not collective decision. It is a, it is individual decision. So if you if you want to be really really simple and break it to the smallest bit. You might say that it's an individual stuff <laughs> because it is that one person who decides all these things. Of course, head coaches, the manager's job is to knit all these individual jobs and decisions together to make that team performance. And then, then you get the team performance where everybody supports each other. I learned that so much. Fantastic. Fantastic year as a, as a you know, of course, you, you learn all the time, but uh, that, was, that, was, that was huge. Great. The achievements that you've had as a manager, almost putting them aside, and I'm talking obviously about Cowdenbeath as well and in Finland, I would just wonder, have you ever considered, uh, what's the right term, upstairs within strategy in football? Or do you enjoy working with the players day-to-day -day a bit too much? I love working with the players. 
I love coaching. I love to be on the training ground with the players. But I've, I have also thought about and, uh, and even said that uh, I would like to try technical director's role, director of football role, somebody who creates these philosophies and these, uh, you know, signature drills and how we motivate uh, our youngsters. I just hope that uh, now Tommy and the players will, uh, will lift the team away from the troubles. Many Kili fans come to me and, and say how, how a fantastic time we had and all that. Absolutely. It was, it was great. It was special. I've many times, you, Finland, you mentioned the Finland job. Many times I have wondered, what if I stayed? What if I stayed? We were going for things. We were improving. We, we got a great start. Although first first few months were sticky. But then he started to, to give us his uh, threat. What if I stayed? What might have happened? I don't know, but th- th- these are all, it's, it's stupid to think like that. When the Finland job was uh, put in front of me, it was impossible <laughs> to refuse that. And uh, there was nothing wrong. There was nothing wrong with the Kilmarnock, you know, so I was, I was seeking to get elsewhere. No, not at all. It was just, uh, it was a pity he finished that one season. But, uh, and I've, I've often wondered if I stayed longer and had a chance to really really create and leave a legacy and, and the way to operate and be together even more with the, with the youth side of things and create a really strong environment and kill it brand, if you like. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've often wondered because I have, I have nothing but positive feelings towards, uh, towards the club. Great. Absolutely beautiful. I think, though, it's fair to say, Mick, so that sometimes opportunities come up that you just can't say no to. Yeah, uh, it's it's funny me to say that. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Huge thanks to Mixu Pataline for taking the time to speak to me about a special season for Kilmarnock Football Club, and for going into such fascinating detail. Killer Histories is made by Right Half Communications in partnership with Kilmarnock FC Former Players Association and the Killer Trust. Find out more at www.kilahistories.com And follow the series on Twitter and Facebook at Killer Histories. If you like the series, please do retweet, share and write a review on your podcast app. The theme music Clear Progress by scottholmesmusic.com is used under free Creative Commons licence. This interview was recorded by video call with Mixu in Hong Kong in February 2021. I'm Gordon Gillen. See you next time.